By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to Behind the Bonds, connecting the dots on corporate credit. This is Jeff Prezan, your host in New York. We hope 2024 is off to a very good start for you and all of yours, and we're, of course, glad to have you back with us for our podcast. So the calendar has ticked over into a new year, but you will have noticed that some things haven't changed much. Your interest rates are probably still a fair bit higher than you'd like. Well, companies don't like that either. High interest rates are keeping their borrowing costs high, especially for companies with speculative-grade credit quality, no matter the sector or what part of the world. Companies already have enough to worry about from precarious supply chains to expensive energy supplies. On today's episode, my colleague Richard Barley in London sits down with Miriam Durand, the managing director of Moody's Global Corporate Finance Group. They'll talk about the 2024 regional outlooks for non-financial companies worldwide. Later in the episode, we'll look more closely at China, where Moody's has a negative outlook for non-financial sectors and where the property market is still in the grip of a systemic slowdown. But certain Chinese sectors still stand to benefit from this year's economic conditions. We'll hear from my colleague Livia Yap in Singapore, who's discussing the situation for China's corporate sectors with Gloria Chuen, a senior analyst in Moody's Hong Kong office. First, let's look at the rest of the world. Welcome, Richard, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Jeff. And a Happy New Year to you as well. So I'm here with Miriam. Hi, Miriam. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Richard, and Happy New Year to you and to the listeners. And a Happy New Year to you as well. Now, we published five regional 2024 outlooks for non-financial companies in December, covering North America, Latin America, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, or EMEA, Asia-Pacific, excluding China, and China. Now, our colleagues are going to dive deeper on China, which has a negative outlook in our second segment. So we're going to talk about the rest of the world, Miriam, no pressure. So what's the big picture? Well, for the other four regions, our outlooks are evenly split. The outlook for credit conditions for non-financial companies is stable in North America and Asia Pacific and negative in EMEA and Latin America. A stable outlook means we expect conditions to remain about the same in 2024 as they were in 2023, while a negative outlook points to some deterioration. But there is an overarching theme that is a big factor in all our outlooks for this year, higher interest rates around the globe. Um, that's right. That's one of our key credit themes for the year, isn't it? What are the most important effects for companies? When I think about it, there are really two key routes that will affect corporate finances. The first is already playing out. Companies have to pay more to borrow and refinance their existing debt. That's a particular challenge for speculative grade companies. And the second is that higher rates will weigh on demand because consumers are feeling their effect and because higher interest rates are directly affecting certain sectors, in particular real estate. That will play out a bit differently across different regions. So let's drill down a little bit by region then and start with North America, where we have a stable outlook. What's going on there? Well, here the story is the relative strength of the US economy, which is helping to generate robust corporate profits. That's a relatively good starting position 
from which to face the negative effect of higher interest rates. But we still expect US growth to slow, don't we? Yes, to around 1%. But that will help avoid potential overheating. In the meantime, the labor market remains solid and inflation has retreated from its peak. That will mean consumers continue to spend, supporting corporate credit quality in many sectors. Although they may become more choosy about what they buy, so that is something we need to keep in mind. And we expect the US Federal Reserve to start cutting rates this year too. And high rates will still have an impact, right? Yes, absolutely. Sectors like real estate, capital goods manufacturing and consumer durable goods, which have high exposure to interest rates, will remain under pressure. High rates also fuel a strong dollar, which hurts exporters but helps travel and hospitality companies. And meanwhile, companies that generate large cash balances will benefit from higher rates. Overall, though, many companies will need to refinance at high rates. Interest cover and liquidity considerations will be important to assessing credit quality as higher rates expenses dampen free cash flow and, remember, maturity walls get closer. Okay, let's move to Asia-Pacific then, where we also have a stable outlook. What's the story there? Well, in that region, we expect growth to remain robust in some key economies like India and Indonesia, which will be the two fastest growing G20 countries, although developed markets will be more muted. Average earnings are set to grow by 6-7% to across key sectors, except oil and gas, metals, mining and steel. And crucially, we expect a limited effect from higher rates, because most of the companies we rate in the region are investment grade. High yield companies in Asia Pacific will face more difficulty in refinancing. And how do we expect some of the sectors in the region to fare? We expect continued growth in some sectors that were really hit hard by coronavirus, such as airlines, hospitality, and aerospace. We think Asia-Pacific real estate companies, with the exception of China, will remain steady with a supportive domestic funding environment. Most of the companies we rate have capacity to cope with higher borrowing costs. And earnings for oil and gas companies are set to ease from the very high levels in 2022, even if crude prices remain above our medium-term price range. What about structurally? Are there any important changes or shifts to watch out for? Yes, shifts in supply chains are important to watch as global polarization shapes industrial policies and investment. Many firms are boosting their protections against tensions between the US and China. Emerging economies are taking measures to attract business investment and improve competitiveness. And here again, India and Indonesia are well-placed to benefit. Multinational companies are also diversifying their production bases into these countries, along with Malaysia and Vietnam. But that said, supply chains will take, take time to shift. So let's turn now to those regions where the outlook perhaps isn't as strong. Why is the EMEA corporate outlook negative? That is largely because a lot of risks that drove our negative outlooks for 2023 do persist. Higher interest rates, risks around energy costs and supplies, and the effect of inflation and slower growth on consumers. Many companies have proved able to adapt to tougher economic conditions 
and pent-up demand has supported consumer spending. But we do expect growth to remain tepid in the region's biggest economy at less than 1% in Germany, France, Italy and the UK. We should also remember that geopolitical risks are elevated with a continuing war between Russia and Ukraine and the military conflict between Israel and Hamas. You started off with rates again there. It really is a, a key driving force, isn't it? Yes, it is, absolutely. In EMEA, as well as rising financing costs for all companies, it will directly affect some sectors such as commercial real estate, automakers, producers of big-ticket consumer goods. And in real estate, higher borrowing costs are driving valuations lower and eroding free cash flow. Office and retail properties face particular challenges because of hybrid working and the shift to online shopping. Even for segments with long-term demand, such as logistics and residential, higher borrowing costs will weigh. And you also mentioned energy costs there. Why is Europe so exposed? Well, we expect Europe's gas supply to meet demand at the start of this year. But persistently higher input prices in Europe versus the US, Asia and the Middle East will erode European competitiveness over time. There is a slow drift of investment in chemicals, for instance, towards the US and other countries with lower energy costs. And that contributes to a trend where Europe is being less industrialized in sectors like steel and auto, which has implications for companies that provide supporting services. Okay, there's one more region to go. Let's talk about Latin America. Yes, again in Latin America, high interest rates and uneven growth will hamper spending, investments and employment, even if monetary tightening cycles have ended in the region. More than two-thirds of rated Latin American corporate issuers are spec-grade, and price controls, subsidies and government interference mean the operating environment remains weak in Latin America, although it is improving. On top of that, climate and geopolitical risks just add volatility to agricultural, metals and mining commodity prices. Okay, and there are some bright spots too though, right? Yes, they are. And while rates are high in Latin America, we do expect some easing in lending conditions and cooling in inflation. As we mentioned for the Asia-Pacific region, shifting global investment flows are a factor. And nearshoring activity should also continue to boost Mexico, where the auto, real estate and communications technology sectors are benefiting. But even in that country, infrastructure limitations, public policy hurdles and physical climate risks constrain the benefit. Thank you, Miriam, for that whistle-stop tour of four of our regions. There's a lot more insight available in the full outlook reports that we've published. But for now, I'm going to hand over to my colleague Livia in Asia-Pacific to delve into China. Thanks, Richard. Yes, our outlook for Chinese companies is negative for 2024, just like in 2023, because we see credit conditions worsening in the next 12 months. Between a disappointing recovery from the pandemic, stress in the property market, and high debt levels in the government sector, there are many factors at play here. So... Here to unpack all of this for us is Gloria Chun, an analyst on the corporate finance team here in Hong Kong. Welcome, Gloria. Hi, Nadia, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Happy to have you. So, Gloria, let's jump right into it. 
Can we start with an overview of the credit environment for Chinese non-financial companies in 2024? Sure. Like you said, we see credit conditions deteriorating for Chinese non-financial companies this year. We expect that China's economic growth will slow to around 4% in 2024 from around 5% last year. And that's partly because of the prolonged downturn in the property sector. There are also risks in areas like geopolitical tensions and policy uncertainties, especially around the private sector. Now, China's property and related industries contributed to 24% of GDP in 2022, and that is already down from almost 30% in 2020. This downturn is structural, and it will remain a drag on China's medium-term growth, which is also being constrained by other issues such as aging population, lower productivity growth, and reduced capital efficiency. Can you give us more detail on how the property sector downturn affects different entities? Well, the slowdown will directly affect industries that are along the supply chain, like building materials, household appliances, and construction. Now, land sales revenue has also declined, and this is important for regional and local governments because they often rely on that revenue to support their local economies and subsidiaries, including the local government financing vehicles, or LGFVs for short. And that is only the direct impact. Indirectly, the property market downturn has also weakened the macro environment and consumer and investor sentiment, and these will drive further contagion. You mentioned the reduced land sales for regional and local governments, and I know this has exacerbated financial stress at some LGFEs in 2023. So can you give us a bit more background on that? Yes, definitely. So the LGFVs have traditionally been used by the regional and local governments to plug their fiscal gaps and to invest in local infrastructure needs and construction. Now, most LGFVs require financial support from their government owners because they don't generate enough revenue on their own. So their credit quality depends significantly on their government owners' capacity to support them. Right. And then how do the reduced land sales come into play? Well, with the property market downturn and also a weaker than expected economic recovery from the pandemic last year, the regional and local governments were unable to generate as much revenue as before through land sales. So their capacity to support the LGFVs has weakened. Now, there has since been some government support measures for the sector, but we do not think that they address the long-term debt sustainability issue. And we also expect government support to become more selective going forward. Why is that so? That's because the government is facing quite a number of conflicting aims here. First off, it wants to maintain financial system stability. And with more support being given to the financially stressed regional and local governments and the state-owned enterprises, um, i.e. the SOEs for short, this would pose a downside risk to China's own fiscal, economic, and institutional strength. At the same time, the government also wants to discourage the state-related entities from expecting government bailouts, and it's also seeking to de-lever and de-risk the wider public sector. Okay, so can you tell us which entities are more likely to receive support? Not exactly a straightforward answer, but the impact would definitely be uneven. The SOEs that are owned by the local governments Ones that are commercially oriented or do not have 
key public policy mandates, and also those that are less aligned with national strategic objectives, now those will be less likely to receive extraordinary support from the central government. In comparison, the SOEs that are fully owned or effectively controlled by the central government, they will get higher priority for support. And that an SOE's primary business will also influence its likelihood of receiving support. Now, those that are in industries that are more critical to national security and economy, those will be prioritized in our view. So with this uneven impact, do you also see differences in the impact from broader economic policy? Yes, we expect the government to continue to focus on containing leverage, improving capital allocation, and also cultivating new growth drivers. Now, it is trying to rebalance the economy away from property and towards higher productivity sectors like high-tech manufacturing, consumption, and new energy. This means that companies in these strategically important sectors will benefit. And this is particularly the case when geopolitical tensions are still high and China is also stepping up its efforts to become more self-sufficient in critical technologies like new energy, semiconductors, big data, robotics, and AI. Okay. And again, this uneven impact, does it also apply to privately owned companies as well? Yes, it does. Although in general, we do expect credit conditions to be better for the SOEs because they have strong market positions and also better funding access. And investors will probably um, also continue to be risk averse toward the privately owned companies, especially the high yield ones. The higher for longer rate environment will also make the US dollar bond market more expensive than domestic funding. And this will reduce the funding options that high-yield companies have. At the same time, these companies do have substantial bond maturities in the next couple of years, around half of which is offshore versus half onshore. So the refinancing challenges would still be there. Thanks, Gloria. I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for giving us a comprehensive overview of the key challenges for Chinese companies in 2024. Back to you, Jeff. I want to extend a very special thanks to both of our guests today. You heard Miriam Durand and Gloria Chuin, and I also want to thank my colleagues who spoke with them, Richard Barley and Livia Yap. Sounds like we're in for yet another interesting year in the world of corporate credit conditions. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Behind the Bonds, our first of the year, and that we'll have you again in a few weeks. Right now, we have some links to related research in the show notes if you'd like to know a bit more about what you've heard today. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On moody's.com slash podcasts, you'll find all of Moody's many podcasts in one convenient home. Please take a look. For now, from all of us here at Behind the Bonds, we wish you a slightly belated Happy New Year. This is Jeff Prusan in New York, wishing all of you the very best for 2024. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.